The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. I met today's guest in February of 2020, toward the end of what we at Hello Monday sometimes call before. I was moderating a panel at an event for journalists. Snigda Sir was there to talk about her company, The Juggernaut. It was one of the, you know, the last events that anybody congregated in a group larger than probably two or three. I remember hugging people on the panel, like that was just unheard of for almost a year. And it was at that moment where I think there was so much excitement in the air, especially for the company. That was a moment where I felt like there was a lot of possibility. Few people really had COVID on their mind in the U.S. the way that they would just a month after that. Sure, there were rumblings, but we had no idea. And that is why I wanted to talk to Snigda. Because it's not just her story that I have to tell you today. It's the story about what a pandemic did to a young startup and what a founder learned by surviving through it. And surviving really is the operable word here. There's a lot in here about how to raise money, what to do when you can't, what to finally do when you can again, because it's not as easy as you think it's going to be. There are a lot of lessons here, too, in how to just persist through it. As I was thinking about Snigda's pandemic story, and this is the writer in me, it broke nicely into four chapters. I'm going to take you through each of them. But first, I want her to tell you about The Juggernaut. Here's Snigda. The Juggernaut is a media company and community that tells South Asian stories. And when we think South Asia, it's India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. Our focus is on the diaspora first, especially in the United States. That's partly because we're the fastest growing major demographic here. And also because in terms of the way media is structured, where our stories are not often prioritized. We're just so tiny. We're six million. So when you know somebody writes an article about yogurt starter in the Indian community, that one article gets shared among everybody, like all the aunties and uncles, everybody sharing it on WhatsApp. And my vision for the juggernaut initially was, since I'm an avid reader, I was thinking, well, how do I create that moment, not just once a month or like once every few months, but how do I create that moment every day for people? where they're thinking, hey, I've had that idea. I wanted to see that story, but why isn't anybody writing about it? I have a soft spot for founders like Snigda. I've interviewed so many of them over the years, people who raise capital from investors on the promise that they're building something that will grow very big very quickly and make a lot of money. Most of the time, these companies fail, but sometimes the founders create 23andMe or Airbnb. Inevitably, there's a moment early on where they realize their idea is working that it has potential. Yeah, things are going right. They're working. Um, our content is resonating. I know that's a very dirty word in journalism sometimes, but it's the best way to describe all the media. Um, but our journalism is working and our messaging is working. And we're like, great, how do we keep doing this? And guess what we did? We started advertising and marketing. You know, this is the whole, you know, build it and they will come fallacy that many people in the tech world sometimes have, which is I'm going to create an exceptional product and people are going to be knocking on the door to use it. And, you know, we were kind of told to do the same thing. We're like, just build it. People will come. And so we started testing Facebook and Instagram advertising and it worked. People really did kind of see those ads 
get convinced, sign up. To this day, you know, we have some subscribers where, you know, I used to go on calls with them on Thursdays and I meet some of my subscribers on Zoom. And they'd say, yeah, I, I saw one of your ads and I got hooked and I wanted to check it out. And now I'm a subscriber. And of course, like you said, stronger, better, faster. We're not even optimized. We're not even 100% like the best yet. But where we are, we were really excited to see that early traction. This is where our story begins. Chapter one, COVID-19. In February of 2020, I remember that when we had just met, I think I had either just come from San Francisco or was headed to San Francisco because going back to our traction and seeing our numbers grow, we're like, it's time to raise. Now this is the perfect time to raise. And I had spoken to several VCs in the Valley, trying to drum up excitement, trying to just understand the market. And I thought the conversations were going somewhere. And then suddenly March hits. And that's when New York City shuts down. That's when a lot of cities shut down. And suddenly all the venture capitalists were just scared. They didn't know what to do. They just paused everything. You know, they didn't, they were thinking in the VC world, like, where will our next raise come from for the VCs themselves? They're like, will future kind of limited partners give us more money? And we were thinking, will venture funds ever fund us? Like, how long is this moratorium going to last? Especially because I was looking at our cash balance and I'm like, well, we have four months of runway. We have three months of runway. And thankfully, because we were growing, it wasn't as dire as some other companies, right? Where truly, truly, if they were completely going down, they didn't even have, some people didn't even have revenue to offset any of their expenses. So for a runway, let's just be clear for our listeners who may not be building companies, what you're talking about is the money to keep the company open for that month, right? Exactly. When we say like three months of runway, it's basically saying I've estimated that I spend net about, let's say, $50,000 per month and I only have $150,000 left in my bank account for that three months of runway. And so, you know, we, you know, especially when we're growing, you know, we really think in cash, like how much cash do we have left in the bank? And when you're running a company, you're also, you know, have signed up for people's livelihoods in terms of your employees, you signed up for your customers' demands and servicing them. And so, you know, that's why it's even scarier than, and it is scary when you're an individual running out of cash, but it's, you know, also scarier because of all of those kind of interrelated things. And you were living in New York, right? I was, I was living in New York. Most of my investors also are from the Valley because I had done an accelerator program called Y Combinator in San Francisco. And so I thought, well, I can't even travel to the West Coast. Many of these VCs have even like just been like not even responded to my emails. And I could clearly see that they had stopped everything. And so I just kind of was like, well, if I can't really do anything, if I can't raise right now, I just have to go back to the business and think about what I can do for the business. And so everything after that became much more inward. We had to have the difficult conversations with some of our employees, which is, hey, like, it might mean we can't afford you anymore. We ultimately, like, let go of basically the entire team except for me, just to say, like, I didn't know how long that BC winter would last. And it was just yeah. me operating it at one point. <laughs> March of 2020, if you were in New York, ambulances whizzing down the streets, sirens, nobody was out. People were really closed up and people all around us were getting sick. And yes, you got sick, right? I got sick. And it's so ironic because I thought I was being so careful. Like even before New York City announced the lockdown on March 15, I believe, I had self-lockdown starting from about March 6. We had... Um, you know, ordered like the Lysol wipes, like I wasn't leaving the apartment. The only things I was doing was like throwing away the trash because I had to and going to get my mail. My parents also got COVID. My dad was a doctor at Jamaica Hospital in Queens at the time, which was very much a COVID hotspot. 
uh, Queens really had it bad and he got it. My mom got it. And then around the same time I got it. And so to this day, we don't know how I got it. It could have been exposure to them because we were doing a family bubble. It could have been me just walking down the hallway. And, um, I'm very thankful that my parents actually recovered far faster than I did. I'm hoping it was a different strain or something. They were just better about it. But I had one of those like long haul symptoms where for seven to nine months, I couldn't really even taste or smell properly. Well, so those long symptoms lasted for a long time. But the the acute part of it where you really couldn't work, how long did that last? Most concentrated acute part was the first week. It was really, really difficult. It's kind of some of the symptoms people talk about after getting the second dose of a really high fever, like a one-on-one and feeling really fatigued. I had that for about a week and um, I should have just been sleeping, but I actually worked through it. And so I would take as few hours as I could that I felt were my most productive and still keep working and then try to try to go to sleep. And is that because the the startup at that point was you? Like you had let go of your employees. So if it was going to keep on keeping on, you had to do it? Yeah, it was partly that. And I was also trying to like hire again at that point. <laughs> so it was it was just a lot. Um, and so I felt like I had to keep going. And I have to be thankful to our freelance journalists. So, you know, the juggernaut is operated by core employees, but also we have a network of over 100 freelance journalists. So I have to really think kudos to them, too, because many of them were able to work in terms of, you know, calling people to do interviews and things like that. So we were proceeding with storytelling because of also their effort, which I have to acknowledge. I was just there here editing. So and like commissioning and hiring. So, you know, they were also doing a lot of that work. Within a couple months, Snigda got well again and VC started investing again, too. So one thing that founders talk about is the monthly founder update. So I will email my investors every month. Um, and say, hey, here are numbers. Here's how we're doing. Here's the beautiful charts. Here's our burn. And what's so crazy to me is none of them would ever get really concerned about our declining runway. I was like, how are you not concerned? Like, I'm super concerned. And I would say that. But then one of the one of our updates, I think it was the April update. People got so excited, like every single one of my investors responded would be like, those are great numbers. Are you raising? And that's when I realized that maybe VC or Silicon Valley was back up, you know, back open for business when my own investors were kind of preempting my round. So what ended up happening was they saw my update. We closed basically 500K for my existing investors. And that led me to have the confidence to say, well, if my existing investors who know all the dirt and the gore, but also all the good stuff and all the great numbers are kind of saying, we want to double down, triple down, quadruple down this is enough of a story that I can go out to new investors and get more. Right. There's this um, this aspect of fundraising that is a really useful thing for, I think, um, first-time founders in particular to understand, um, which is a confidence game, ultimately, which can be very frustrating because whether your story is good or whether your story is bad doesn't matter as much as whether the funders who are about to fund what you're doing understand it, believe it, and believe that um, like there's this... There's a small window. Nobody wants to go first because that requires a level of bravery that's terrifying, but no one wants to be left out. I remember, you know, I call it the tipping point. So once you feel 50% of your round, then like getting the kind of the, you know, the ball to roll down the mountain is way easier. And I remember there was one Friday where we hit that tipping point and had six more meetings lined up that day. And every single one of those people said yes. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, chapter two the Black Lives Matter movement. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back with today's second chapter. The juggernaut has closed a round of funding, and around the world, the Black Lives Matter movement is gaining momentum. So what does that mean for a South Asian media company? You know, when the Black Lives Matter movement really took hold, we were in a dilemma, which is we don't want to be taking over this conversation. This is not our conversation. Where we can help fill the gap is how do we answer these questions our community has, specifically related to the Black Lives Matter movement. So we published a bunch of op-eds from people who were explaining why they protest. We published, you know, articles about the history of anti-Blackness in the South Asian community. We also, you know, published stories about the celebration of solidarity. Like there has been historical solidarity between the Dalit Panther movement and the Black Panther movement. There's been historical solidarity in what we call Black and Brown love, where there have been Black and Brown interracial couples, and they have been kind of a bastion for inspiration and showing that stories don't have to be just black or white. We made all of those articles free because we're like, we want to make sure that people are reading these stories because they're often untold. And I think a lot of people didn't have that language or that history to tap into during this movement. Many people felt, well, if I'm not, you know, if I'm not black, what do I do? And I think, you know, it always goes down to, well, what are your spheres of influence? What can you do to help? What do you know best? And for us, we were like, well, we're good at storytelling. So let's figure out what are the stories that people don't know about this intersectionality so we can celebrate them. And no other newsroom was going to tell them for us. With limited resources, putting out so many important stories around those topics over the course of the summer, is it fair to say that it really shifted your editorial focus in some ways? Yes. I think that when you have so few resources and so few people, it means that you have to go all in. And it also means that you have to make certain trade-offs. So for us, we kind of told ourselves we want one great story a day, a weekday even. And that kind of limits the scope. We weren't trying to go for the quantity bar of like, let's just churn out a lot of articles. It changes your perspective where, where can we get and tell the best stories and actually shine a light on people's voices who are experts in this and who thought about this and can can share their voice. It's not really about quantity at this point. It's really about the quality. What are the stories we're not telling? Now we arrive at chapter three, the fall. Remember the fall? The theme of last autumn was fear and burnout. And that made things that should have been very straightforward just really hard, like hiring. The fall was such an interesting time because there was also a little bit of, I think, disappointment in the sense that it seemed like the cities were recovering during the summer. And it was only later that literature and science would come out and say it's partly because we were all outdoors. But cases were plummeting in so many American cities during the summer. So we thought, oh, my God, we're out of it. We're like, we're almost out of it. Then the fall happened and then the cases slowly crept up again. And we realized, no, to your point, we're not out of it. So similarly, you know, we had this similar kind of, I would say, emotional journey of the juggernaut. We're like, OK, we didn't have resources. Now we have resources. We closed a lot of it in August. We were so excited to hire. We're like, let's go. Guns are blazing. Like, we're going to build out our team. And we did add some really exceptional people, I will say that. But at the same time, it was just so hard to convince people because COVID had just made everybody so risk averse, many people risk averse. And so 
when it came to hiring, we faced a lot of challenges. It was partly from, you know, figuring out how to convince folks to take a leap of faith. It was also, you know, everyone was working remote. It's not like they were going to be joining this office and there'd be like a big hurrah for them to, you know, for things to happen. It would all be quiet. It'd all be, you know, pretty uneventful. And I would also say as a first time founder, I think I learned a hard lesson about like resources aren't everything when it comes to hiring either. And so we ended up going full on hiring for a couple of months and it ended up having to shut down the process. It was taking too much of my time. It was making the business suffer. It was also making it harder for me to like actually develop the talent within my own company that I had already recruited. So as a solo founder, I had to make that call. I was thinking, I'm getting so many interviews with engineers. I, I think I interviewed over 100 engineers, but I hadn't met the one. Like I could tell, you know, I could tell with like their background, their excitement level, I hadn't met the one. So I shut down the process. Like I got to rethink this. I'm going to go back to the business. Whenever things get really tough, I think a lot of founders go back to the basics. So I was like, let me go back to the basics. Let me go back to the business. Let me be kind of the EIC and think through our content strategy. Let me help inculcate new talent. Let me get the operations humming. I'll revisit this in the new year. That was my thought process when people mm-hmm. have, when people are more open to change. Um, and it also, as you, as you talk about that, it makes me think about how when you're a founder, you have to wear all hats but the truth is that you don't wear them all in the same way at the same time. And there are these things that you'll have to do in the cycle of building a company that become all consuming. Suddenly, out of nowhere, 85% of your time has to be spent on, say, raising money. And then you do it, and then you can turn back to the business fundamentals again. And I think the same thing happens with hiring when you need to fill those spots. That's what you need to be doing full time almost, right? Exactly. And I, I, I kind of uh, chuckled a little bit when you said 85% because it sometimes feels like you're spending 100% on, you know, on fundraising or hiring, and then you're spending like the extra 20% on the rest of the things you need to get done to like squeak, you know, squeeze by or squeak by. So it feels like you're doing 120% during those months. It feels like it's so all consuming. For Snigda, 2020 was so exhausting that she didn't even have the energy to realize she was exhausted. And so that brings us to our fourth and final chapter, founder burnout. Yeah, no, January, I still didn't learn it because January, I realized in Q1, I could slowly feel it, but I hadn't really put my finger on it, that I was extremely burned out. And I, you know, I love listening to Hello Monday's episodes on that because sometimes you don't understand it. You don't understand you're burned out and you start seeing signs of it. And so by January, I realized I had signs of it because we really pride ourselves during the holidays, like so from like December 24th to January 2nd, the entire company was shut down. But when we say the entire company was shut down, the founder wasn't shut down. So I was there like doing mail mail merges or like sending emails and like doing our social media. And I was thinking those 20 minutes every day that I was spending doing it was way less than the eight hours to 12 hours I clock, you know, when I'm working full time. But they just eat, eat at you because you never feel like you're off. And so by the time January started, I really had, you know, I was so wide-eyed and bushy-tailed being like, this is going to be great. It's 2021. It's a new year. I'm going to be great at this. And I started finding that every little kind of initiative I was taking, I was just extremely slow at. One of the things any founder prides themselves in is speed. Um, I think the Stripe founders talk about this, the Carlson brothers. They talk about speed. They talk fast. They read fast. They do things fast. They talk so fast, those guys. (laughs) They talk really fast. And I appreciate them because they made me feel normal. I do read fast. I do talk fast. There's a certain impatience that certain founders have. And by the way, like, you know, 
all versions of speaking speeds are totally fine, just so people know. I do not, I do not want to say one version is better. Um, and there's this impatience you have, and I could see myself getting slower. I was just slower at things. Like I'd usually like I'd have an idea and by execution, it'd be two weeks later or even a month later. Now I'd have an idea and it'd be like three months later and I hadn't done it. And I'd be like, why haven't I done this? And there was no really good answer except for the fact that I was doing the most urgent kind of must do this week things and not necessarily the most important things in my week. I was barely scraping by and it took me a long time to realize that. I booked myself a vacation in April. And um, I don't want to get too far ahead, but you know, now that we're in the second quarter, I have only now in May restarted my hiring process. And what I learned is very, very different. I have delegated, like I have hired a recruiting firm for the specific jobs that I know that I might not have the best um, uh, networks for. I have then done the jobs that I do believe I have the best networks for more manually. So right now we're hiring for a couple of engineers every night. I do the paperclip test from Atomic Habits. Every night, I send 20 emails to 20 engineers. What is the paperclip test from Atomic Habits? Yeah. So, sorry, it's not the paperclip test. It's like the paperclip. It's a paperclip story. So there was a salesperson that James Clear talks about who his goal was to increase his sales for this entire month. That seems like a very gnarly, vague goal. Like, how do you even do that when you're new as a salesperson? So what this person did was he had two tubs. And one tub had a lot of paper clips and one tub had no paper clips. And he would just measure how many calls he made every day so that he, you know, you, he could feel like he was making progress because otherwise he really had no numbers to prove or show. And by the end of the month, he was the top salesperson. Oh. And it was just like him just tracking his, his little thing. So like similarly, hiring and fundraising can feel really terrible sometimes. You're like, where's the money? Where's the hire? Like there's no outcome. And so I realized I need to make myself feel rewarded for the interim step. And so every day I now report to the team, I've emailed 20 engineers. The next day I'll be like, I've emailed 20, 20 more. And like that, those, those allow you to give you that little win so that you can feel like you're making progress. And before you know it, you will have, you will have made progress. You will have made that higher. You will have like raised the money you think you might need, things like that. Snigda and I spoke in May. The company was gaining subscribers and making money, and she was feeling back to herself again. So I asked her to think about the lessons from the pandemic, and I'm going to call this part our conclusion. I'm very thankful we've survived, and I know that so many businesses have had it really hard. So, you know, I'm not trying to think like, oh, wow, this has been a great, great year in terms of that. I recognize that it hasn't been easy for so many people. One of my lessons truly is that as you said before, founders wear so many hats and we get used to it. We get used to wearing a lot of hats. And sometimes when things are tough, we're really hard on ourselves because we're not perfect at all of those hats. And I think one of the biggest lessons I learned was how do I delegate more of those hats? How do I kind of reframe problems so that I realize that I deserve the help, that I don't need to kind of figure this out alone? And that was one of the reasons that I kind of finally said, you know what, it's worth our company budget for me to hire a recruiter. We deserve a recruiter. We deserve the best talent. That can really change the, our company's tra tra trajectory. It's a great investment. And also just, I would say, just being kinder to ourselves. Like, I think one of the reasons I wasn't taking that vacation was I thought, well, I need to be hiring. I need to be doing all of these things. And then in hindsight, I should have taken a month-long vacation or even a two-week vacation as soon as I closed the first round of funding. Got off to like a secluded pace and really thought about what I wanted to do with it. 
And I, I truly recommend that for many, many founders because right after you raise, there is this weird feeling of a ticking time time bomb, like or time clock, where you're like, I gotta spend this money in the best way possible as soon as it's in my bank account. And then we delay that vacation. Take those breaks, take more vacations. I think some of the best people are very good at taking vacation. And I probably need to get better at that. <laughs> well, thank you. This was great. That was Snake to Sir. Check out what she's building at thejuggernaut.com. I hope you'll make it to Hello Monday Office Hours this week. It's our weekly coffee break. We literally fill our cups and dish about the show. This week, Sarah and Michaela Greer will be on hand to share stories about what we've all learned during the pandemic and maybe a few things we've yet to learn. We'll go live as usual Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll be on the LinkedIn news page. You can follow us on LinkedIn News to find us or email us at hellomonday@linkedin.com for the link. As Snigda discussed in this episode, getting people really excited about what you're building is so crucial to helping that thing grow. We hope you are excited about Hello Monday. If you want to help us grow, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. Thanks. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Ariando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer, Samantha Roberson, Carrington York, and Victoria Taylor help us tell these stories. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We're back next Monday. Thanks for listening. I want to know what month you got the Peloton. I was really thinking I was too ahead of the game. I got it in March, even before I got March of sick. 2020? Yeah. I got it like early March. You know, as soon as like we all, I self-locked down in March 6th, I ordered the Peloton. So I got really lucky because I got it delivered before I got sick. Uh, <laughs> and then I was a crazy person who actually worked out on the Peloton while I was sick, which was really, really stupid. And in hindsight, I should not have done that. So no, do not do that when you're sick. <laughs> <laughs>